you could turn your Bibles to Psalm 121. We're going to look at uh, things as we go along. It is a remarkable little poem. Um, it resonates with people and has through the millennia. Um, it, it talks about our, our security in life and the relational constancy with God. And it, um, well, it's just had a lot of attention paid to it through the centuries since it was written. Uh, I've got an article at home where the author compiled all the different suggestions. Well, not all of them, but he compiled a bunch of different suggestions of the context out of which this psalm is said to have arisen and been written. And he lists 15. There's more than that. But I just wanted to share a couple of my favorites. That Somebody in the past has suggested that this was a psalm that arose from a businessman who was about ready to leave on a business trip and that God was going to protect him. I'm, I'm not sure where. But my favorite was the suggestion that this is a psalm of a compulsive mountain climber and that this was his song as he was about to climb a mountain. I think that one's right because we know that subsistence farmers in Israel had unlimited leisure time and disposable income to go climbing mountains, right? But there are a couple of contexts in this psalm that we know occurred. I'm not certain that they're the original one that it, it came out of, but we do know that, um, that this was the original context. Oh. Um, the original contexts we don't know, but these are ones that it was used in. And the first one you see up there on the slide is in the context of traveling to Jerusalem in order to worship. So it's a context of, of pilgrimage. Uh, three times in the law, it's uh, told for the Israelites, particularly the men, but the, the women and families went along too. We know that from, from uh, various stories in the Bible. To gather in Jerusalem for the three big festivals, for Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And, and the people would come. Now, it was a difficult ask by the Lord because those festivals were celebrated at the same time as the harvests. So it was... It, it was a big deal to leave one's fields to go to the festivals, and it became even more difficult with the exile and its dispersion of Jews around. But they would come to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage, and, and on those, at those festivals, Jerusalem would swell to many times its original number, or normal number, as, as people came in, and there would be national fervor and religious fervor, and it was an intense time of worship and, and emotion. That actually is the context of Jesus' last week of his life, by the way. And people sang psalms. Just a couple of weeks ago, we read, or Paul led us through Psalm 118, and that was the psalm that was sung as Jesus came into Jerusalem that day. And we know that, that lots of psalms were sung. In fact, these songs, you see the, the title of this psalm, A Song of Ascents, this collection was collected for pilgrimage. It has a movement of pilgrimage. So if you look in, in Psalm 120, right before our uh, passage, it says, Woe to me, I dwell in, in Meshach in the tents of Kedar. That's up north in, in the Arabian Peninsula. These people are, are spread out, and yet there's a movement through these songs of ascents to Psalm 134 where it ends, which is a call to worship in the temple. And so there's a movement towards worship. 
The Psalms of Ascent contain many different kinds of of psalms, laments when life is bad, praise when life is good, wisdom on how to live life. There's even a Davidic psalm in there that celebrates the Davidic dynasty. This one in particular is a psalm of trust, and I want to talk about that in a little bit. But the ascents, what does the ascent mean? Well, let me show you a picture here. These are the mountains of Judea. These are the hills that the author is lifting up his eyes to. Now, for a lot of the people, as they would travel to Jerusalem, their favored route would be to go down to the Jordan Valley because you can see all the ravines. You're going to be going up and down, up and down, traveling that way. They would go down to the valley where they would have a straight shot, and when they hit the stoplight at Jericho, they would make a hard right and go up into the hills where Zion was. Now, a little bit of geography. Jericho is quite a bit below sea level. And Jerusalem is quite a bit above sea level. So they would ascend about 3,400 feet as they climbed from Jericho to Jerusalem. That's significant. And in the heat of the Mideast, that's really significant. And so these are psalms of ascent, of the pilgrimage, of coming to Jerusalem to worship uh, God. Now there's another context that they were used in, and many think... um, that uh, this was the stairs of the temple in worship. Uh, Many Jews, this is the the traditional Jewish interpretation of the Songs of Ascent. Uh, There's two stairs. This is a south stair right in the middle, that little dark spot. That would have been one of the doors to enter the temple complex. And there are 15 wide stairs in that staircase and then two short stairs in between it. And so you would sing one of the 15 songs on the wide stair, take two steps up, sing another one, And so many think that this south staircase is where the songs of ascent were sung. Others think that it is these stairs that were leading into the inner court where the the altar and the sacrifice take place. And there would be Levites on each of the 15 stairs, and they would be singing this, the trained singers. And so coming to worship and in worship, you can see the movement even in the stairs as well as the pilgrimage that it is a movement to God. And I think that's one of the reasons that Psalm 121 resonates so much with us is that it, it describes the movement of life to worship God while admitting, and not maybe admitting, but, but realizing the reality of trouble and difficulty. And so these were uh, two of the contexts that the psalms uh, were used. They would have been loud psalms and moving psalms, professionally done by the Levites who were skilled musicians and skilled singers. And you could dance to them. Remember David when the the ark came to Jerusalem and and you know the Jewish style of music. Um, They were moving, engaging songs. And so this psalm would have been used coming to worship and in worship. It is a psalm of trust or confidence. And psalms of trust and confidence mean um, that there's, there's songs that have a tone of trust. Now a lament psalm is one where the trouble is all around the psalmist and, and he feels like he's drowning. Some of the psalms, they'll say that. Uh, Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, 
are you going to keep your face from me? But as he begins to move out of that trouble, and, and the trouble recedes, and the trust and the faith come to the fore, we have these psalms of trust. They're expressions that come out of trouble. They're born out of having one's faith tried. And they resonate deeply with us. Some of our favorite psalms, like this one, happen to be psalms of trust for that very reason. As I said, they, they, they recognize the reality of the difficulty of life, and yet affirm the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And so they resonate deeply with us. Psalm 23, perhaps uh, the best known of all the psalms, is a psalm of trust. The psalmist there is eating a meal at the table with the host in the presence of his enemies. not like the threat has gone away, but it's receded into the background and his trust and his faith is coming to the fore that he is led through dark valleys at the same time as he's led through green pastures. So this psalm resonates with us and it has uh, been a favorite of many for many times. It's, um, it's been wonder, wonderful for me to read it again and study it again uh, this week. The structure of it, it's only a few lines long, isn't it? But it has a pretty interesting form to it. And here it is. There's a pronouncement of trust in the beginning. And then there's a reason to trust and a second reason to trust. We'll unpack those. And then a pronouncement of blessing at the end. So you can see it breaks into four different couplets. And I think the ESC helpfully shows that to you. The first one is in red. If you notice, if you're colorblind, um, let me inform you. The reason it's in red is because that's the most distinctive element of this psalm. If you, if you notice it, it says, I lift up my eyes, my help comes from the Lord. But then in verse 3, he changes from the first person to the second, sing, to second person. He will not let your foot be moved. And so you have a distinct change of pronoun, and the second person singular continues on through the whole, um, the whole psalm. And it's singular. In a lot of time, in English, we don't really have a good indication if this is plural, you, y'all, or if it's you, singular. These are singular. Now, a lot of suggestions, I've said this psalm has gotten a lot of attention. A lot of suggestions have been made about that, uh, what, it, what that could mean. Some say this is a, a pilgrim leaving home who's speaking to his family. Or a priest who is instructing. Uh, I tend to lean towards, although we just can't know, but I tend to lean towards the fact that this is uh, lyrics, that this is the song leader, and it's, this is to be t- sung antiphonally, and, and the, 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 the proposition, the problem and proposition in one and two, and then the answer comes in three through eight. We don't really know, but it is a distinctive thing that he speaks himself and then to others, and, and many have suggested that it's just simply an individual kind of dialoguing within himself. That's another possibility. But it is very distinctive about it. Let me have you notice a couple of other things about this poem before we jump into it. Five times the covenant name of the Lord is used. That's his name that he's known by his people. We normally say Yahweh. The Jews who won't say that name, they think it's too hard. They call him Hashem, the name. It's just what Hashem is what they say instead of that. 
But five times that's used. You can see it in verse 2. You can see it in verse 5 twice. And then in verse 7 and in verse 8. This is the covenant-keeping God of Israel that we're talking about. That's important. The second thing that I want you to note is that there are six mentions of keep in this psalm. Uh, the ones in 3 through 5 are, are substantives, they're participles. He who keeps you, the one who keeps, the key, Lord is your keeper. And then in 7 and 8 you have three instances and they're verbs of what God is going to do. He will keep. This word keep, uh, if you have an NIV in front of you, it's going to say watches. If you have a Christian standard Bible, it's going to say protect. If you have an NASB, it's probably going to use all three, I think. Um, and it has guard. Those are all good translations of that word. It's a common word, but it's a very important word in the Bible. So, for instance, when Adam was in the garden, God said, keep it and work it. So he told Adam to keep or protect or guard the garden. It's the same thing that he told uh, the, the priests, that they were to keep or to guard the tent from any unlawful transgression of it. And in Aaron's uh, blessing in number 6, may the Lord keep you. So this, this word is important in a covenantal sense of, of watching and maintaining and 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 keeping this relationship intact. It's a significant word. So the main idea of the psalm then is that this covenanting creator knows you and you can trust him. Now I thought too late to put that on a slide. I should have. So let me just say it again. The main idea of this psalm is that the covenanting creator knows you and he can be trusted. So let's jump into this. Um, the first thing is this pronouncement of trust in verses 1 and 2. The opening question actually is the psalm. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? That question is what the rest of the psalm answers, particularly verse 2. And so right away in this first couplet, we have the whole point of the psalm. But I think we have to ask, what is it about the hills that immediately makes the psalmist think, I need help? Why, why would he think that as he looks at the hills? And, and there's a lot to be said here. I'm going to try to make it quick. But the first thing we've got to remember is these are the days before Bass Pro Shops and REI and Cabela's. And the mountains were not majestic, wonderful recreational places to these people. They were places that made their already difficult survival even more difficult. And so when they looked at the mountains, they didn't see them the same way that we do. They weren't counting down the days until the ski slopes opened again. They were places of great danger and great difficulty. Uh, the, 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 those ravines that I showed in that picture are full of wild animals. And you could turn the corner and be face to face with one. And, and all you need to do is remember David's discussion with Saul, right? That he had to kill lions and bears and tigers, oh my. 
the tigers and the oh my part I added. But the lion and the bear is what he talks about, that he came across these animals and they had to be killed to protect his flock as he was in Bethlehem in the Judean hills. And we also know that these craggy ravines were the haunts of two-legged variety of animals, that there were thieves and robbers that could also be encountered at every turn who were actually watching out for uh, unsuspecting victims. And one need only think about Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan there, right? In fact, it was this very pilgrimage that I'm suggesting that the man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho along this way, and he was doing it by himself. And he fell into robbers and thieves who were hanging out there in those ravines. So the mountains were places of great danger to the Jews. They were fearful. But there's also a, a, a very healthy tradition in Scripture that the mountains were, were places of blessing and that they were where God came to meet with His people. And all, all we need to do is think about uh, Mount Sinai, where God came to meet with His people. And Mount Zion, of course, is the quintessential one. But, but think also of, of Mount Carmel, where Elijah had that battle with the priests of Baal. You remember that one? These mountains were places where people met with God. That's why so often through the history books of the Old Testament, they, they are, the, the writers are speaking out against the high places because people were going up onto the top of hills to commune with God because that's what they felt. So the mountains were dangerous and fearful, but at the same time, they were places where they met with God. And this pilgrimage was actually that. They were actually ascending into these hills because Zion was at the center, and they were going to meet with Yahweh at his place at the temple. So it was mixed feelings then. Singing Psalm 121 as they ascended would actually bring some of the protection that the psalm talks about because as the, as the pilgrims would sing, it's going to scare away the wild animals. And it's going to scare away the two-legged kind, isn't it? They're going to go looking for easier targets like the, the man in the Good Samaritan story who's traveling alone. And you can see then, too, why the biblical writers so often say that when the Lord comes back, He's going to tame the mountains. Think of Isaiah. Every hill and valley will be made low. Or Amos. It's going to be a place of abundance where the new sweet wine is going to flow off of the mountains as the Lord comes back and He eliminates the fear and the anticipation and the danger of the mountains. So who is going to help our traveler in getting to the house of God in the center of the hills that are so fearful? Well, the answer comes in verse 2, doesn't it? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And that, that statement, who made heaven and earth, or the maker of heaven and earth, has it is a biblical phrase. And it's even come, made its way into the Apostles' Creed that we sometimes recite about probably should recite more often that he is the maker of heaven and earth it's kind of a cosmic answer to a personal question isn't it i mean i want to get to zion who's going to help me it's not going to be a guide with a cudgel or a couple of soldiers no it's a cosmic answer the creator of everything is the one who is going to help me get to him to worship 
And there's two things in that answer in verse 2 that I want us to notice because the first is the first reason to praise and the second is the second. The first is that covenant name, that this is the covenant God of Israel that we are talking about. And He is the one who is known by His people. He is the one who is going to give them the security and the safety to get to Zion. And so His covenant care, we're going to see in verses 3 and 4, is the first reason to praise. The second reason, then, sees God as Creator, the Maker of heaven and earth. That He is the one who uh, has has brought this world into order and controls it and allows His people the protection that they need to be kept. So these are the two reasons that we have, and then the pronoun changes again from from verse 2 to verse 3, that the teaching begins in verse 3 of what it is uh, that we can trust, the reasons that we can trust God. So let's look at the first reason. The first reason, as I said, is covenant care, and particularly it's the covenant care of what God will not do. Look at 3 and 4. He will not let your foot be moved. It's not going to slip. He will not slumber. He will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, I I don't think we need to do a, a, a big exegetical study on the difference between slumber and sleep. Not in poetry. I think it's just simply saying he doesn't stop watching. So these verses point us to the first reason to trust God. They help the psalmist as he looks to how he's going to arrive and, and the, the keeping that comes from God. He's going to keep his foot from slipping on those hard rocks of those sun-baked hills where there's no give to the earth because it's been so hardened. This image of stability and pilgrimage, I think, again, is one of the reasons that these psalms resonate with us, with every generation, because in our pilgrimage of life, it is God who provides the stability that we need to keep going. He is that shepherd, again, who leads us dark valleys, Sun-baked hills, green pastures, He watches over us. And His care is never ceasing. Now, the, the notion of sleeping is not something that the psalmist takes and just pulls out of his hat. The, the gods of the, of the ancient Near East were fertility gods. And so it was thought that after the final harvest at the end of the year, they would fall asleep. And they would sleep through winter. And then they would wake back up, and that's when things would grow again. So the writer is saying, our God's not like that. He doesn't ever slumber. If you remember again that, that contest between Elijah and Baal on Mount Carmel, ba- uh, Elijah, who I, I think was quite a guy, um, he starts making fun of the priests. Remember that? And he's like, maybe you need to yell a little louder because I think he might be asleep. He knows that, that theology of those pagan gods that they slept. And the writer says, he never slumbers. He never sleeps. Psalm 11 says that he examines, and, and the, the actual words is, his eyelids never blink. He never stops watching. 
his people. And so that is the covenant care that he provides. But I think the most important thing to note here, and perhaps the very pivot of this psalm, is verse 4. He who watches over Israel neither slumber nor sleep. God watches over His people. And you see there in verse 4, Behold, or, or indeed. It's an emphatic thing that He watches over Israel. And here's the point. The reason that the Israelite could trust God, and remember these are all singular, use, but now He's watching over Israel, the community. And the reason that the Israelite could trust God in the face of trouble was not because he had a personal relationship with God, although he might. It's not because uh, he was trying to do his best. The reason that he knew that he could trust God is because God had bound himself in a covenant, just like we just celebrated in Christ. He had bound himself in a covenant with the people of Israel. He had made promises to his ancestors, to the patriarchs. And this Israelite was part of that because he was an Israelite. Those promises belonged to him because he was part of that covenant that God had made with the patriarchs. And he knew that God keeps his promises. And the reason that he could trust God was because he belonged to God's people, and to belong to God's people was to have his keeping and to have his watchful care. And he knew that whatever happened, this covenant God was watching out for his people and keeping them. Now, I could probably stop there, but I'm going to keep going. But I do want to say that we are in the same boat. Not one of us has ever had God say, I'm pleased with you and how you act. Not one of us has ever had God say, you're my beloved. Not one of us has ever said, you can be a ransom for all. All of those things are what Jesus did. And God accepted Jesus as the perfect covenant partner. And Jesus, in rising from the dead, then says to us, if you come to me, Each one of us, if you come to me and trust in me, I will give you forgiveness for your sins because I've paid for it. I will give you the very life of God so that you can live forever with him. I will not be ashamed to call you my brothers. You will be in me. You will be part of my body. And brothers and sisters, if we are in his body, then everything that God is doing through Christ will come to completion Because he's going to fulfill it in Christ. He's going to reconcile everything together in him. He's going to bring Jew and Gentile, male and free, all together into Jesus. He's going to bring everything at the feet of Jesus. Those are the promises that he has promised to Jesus. And if we are in Jesus, then we have them too. In fact, in Romans 8, Paul says this very thing. He says, if he's given us Jesus Christ, how will he not give us freely everything else there's nothing else to give because we have jesus and so ultimately the reason that we know that in the midst of trouble in the midst of struggle that we can trust god to keep us and to deliver us is because we have become part of his covenant relationship with his son and now we are in covenant with him through jesus christ and we can trust him completely Well, let's go back a millennia now. I'm back to Psalm 121. What did the covenant mean to them? What could they expect being part of that people? And so we look in verses 5 and 6, the next couplet. The Lord watches over you. 
He's the shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. That, that now we have the creator aspect coming. So we had the, the covenant watcher of Israel. Now the creation has come back that God is protecting people in the here and now, the, 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 the mundane of life. That he's the shade at the right hand. The sun in the Middle East was dangerous. Working in the fields, sunstroke was a big deal. Finding water was always a concern. And God says, I will be your shade. I will be protection for you. The moon, of course, was thought to be mysterious and dangerous. It could cause disease and defigurement and even madness. In fact, even now our word for lunacy comes from lunar. The effects of the moon are mysterious, more frightening. But even now, if you ask a labor and delivery nurse, they'll tell you that they watch out for a full moon. And if you watch sailors, they'll tell you they watch for the tides. The effects of the moon are mysterious. But, but what God is saying here is not to, not to encourage them in, their, in any, any mysterious or superstitious thinking about the moon. He's just simply saying, it doesn't matter day or night, I will never stop watching. I am your protection all the time. And let's not forget the right hand here. That was the place of the advocate. That was the place of the friend who gave support. We still say things like, you're my right hand man. The person who is providing assistance. And so God is saying to his people, I watch you, I protect you, I guard you, I keep you. Day and night, I never stop watching. I am there for you as your right-hand person to protect you from danger. It's beautiful, isn't it? And those two reasons for trust then launch the psalmist into the final pronouncement of blessing that sums up and wraps up the song. The section is set apart because, as I mentioned, the keeping turns to a verb. It's what God will do, and so it's more pronouncement of blessing of what God is going to do for His people. He's going to protect them from all tragedy and harm. Harm might be a little better word than evil on this one, but you catch the point. He's going to watch over your life, who you are, your desires, your decisions, your comings out and your goings in, all aspects of life He's going to to be watching and keeping and protecting. It's constant care in this pilgrimage of life is what God is promising here. And again, here we see the two occurrences of the divine name. This is God, what He's doing for His people who are His. And so beautifully then the psalm ends. Our going out, our coming in, all the affairs of life are all under His constant watch. Forever. For as long as the keeper of Israel watches, which is forever, he's going to keep. He never sleeps. And so this beautiful psalm enjoins us to trust the covenanting Creator. He cares for His people. He never sleeps. He's their advocate. He's our shade. He's our protector from all evil. And He keeps us, our life. That's a great psalm. And then the phone rings. And it's the doctor's office. And the test results have come back. And they're as bad or worse than you could ever imagine. The disease that they tested is going to rob life. Perhaps it's yours. Perhaps it's someone you love. 
Or perhaps the voice on the other end of the phone speaks of a tragedy, of a baby lost before birth, an accidental love, a death of a loved one who's never going to come home again, an economic setback or disaster. How do we trust in those contexts? When it says that He will keep us from all harm or all evil, and yet our lives are surrounded and filled with harm and evil, what does this psalm actually mean to us? Perhaps there are other issues because there are just manifold possibilities, right? Business venture, they were treated unfairly. Perhaps by a brother who claims to be part of God's people, our sister. Or despite your best parenting, Faithfully done, your child has walked away from you and, and or the Lord. Or loneliness from a broken relationship or from no relationship at all. Or physical infirmity and constant pain and difficulty. Unemployment, abuse, family rejection or estrangement. Even the anxiety of future retirement. The list goes on and on. How do we trust God when He seems untrustworthy? I'll never forget once I was, I was writing on the Psalms and the editor that I was working with was a young woman. Unfortunately, they all seem to be young women at my age. But she was. She was in her 30s and she was a widow. Tragically. And she said to me, I'm so interested in how you're going to handle Psalm 91, which is a psalm like this, just a blanket promise of protection. And it says, thousands will fall at your side, ten thousands at your right side, but it will not come near you. And she said, I want to know what you're going to say when it does come near you. How do you treat this psalm as true when it seems so untrue? How do you trust God when life is a, is a wasteland? Those are big questions, aren't they? How can this psalm be ours when it's actually a time of lament? Well, I know you know I'm talking about the problem of pain and suffering, and I'm not the guy, and this isn't the psalm that's going to lay that issue to rest. But I do think that this psalm has a powerful thing to say. I've already talked a little bit about it with he who watches over Israel. But I want to say this. It speaks to the question of trust. Because in the psalmist's mind, we have to remember that this, this psalm was written out of trouble, not in the absence of it. This psalm is saying you can trust God in the face of what he had just been through, in the face of what he's worried about is coming. And so if we read verse 8 especially verses 7 and 8, as though this is a promise that God is going to give us lives that have no ripples in the water, no troubles, no difficulties. We've totally misread the psalm. That is not what the psalmist is saying. But that we can trust him in the midst of it. And that's the point of a trust psalm. He's learned to trust in the midst of troubles. And here's the distinctive thing that I think that he's talking about. The expectation that he has is a really significant part. Note again that there's a combining of God as the covenanting God, the Lord, and the creating God. 
He is the covenanting creator who knows you and can, can be trusted. Uh, quite often, I suspect, I know for me, and I suspect for you, that many, much of the struggle of trusting God comes from the fact that in our minds, we take those two roles and we separate them. And we don't treat them together as the psalm teaches us to do. We think about our daily lives, our goings out and our comings in, our past pain, our future anxiety, our difficulties, and we tend to think God of God as creator. And we say to him in one way, shape, or form, or think it, God, this is wor- your world that you made, and you created it to be good, and it's not good. There are significant problems, and right now I'm experiencing more than my share of them, and this is not how it's supposed to be, and you need to fix it. And if you don't fix it, then I strongly suspect, and I'm probably even going to accuse you of not being good. So we treat God as creator in one way. But then in our minds, we switch back to think of the covenant. And and in this context, we actually think much more clearly. We recognize our sin and our guilt. We recognize the price that God had to pay in the sacrifice to, to bring us back and to forgive us of our sins, whether it was the picture, the costly animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, or the indescribably costly sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. As hard as it is for us to comprehend in its fullness, and I I doubt we ever will, we try to understand the profound offense that our sin has to a God who is holy and righteous and powerful and yet merciful. And we understand as best as we can that in the new covenant in Christ, we have the ability to have the cost of our rebellion and sin taken care of by placing it upon him. He takes our punishment for us and, as I said earlier, offers us forgiveness and life if we trust in him. And so we understand that we are lost and sinful and that unless God extends grace to us, which for many of us he has, but unless he does that, ultimately in Christ we have no hope. So on the one hand, we see the the need and the position of God as a gracious, covenanting, merciful God who offers forgiveness. But then we so quickly revert back in our heads to seeing God as a creator who needs to have his creation function for us as if there was never any rebellion and sin in the first place. You must do for us what we want while we recognize that as a covenanting God, we are utterly dependent upon his mercy. And what the psalmist says is we cannot separate those in our minds. We have to bring them together, that he is the covenanting creator God. It is not right to expect him to keep our lives as though sin never happened. It is not right to expect him to keep us untouched from the consequences of the very sin that we readily admit that we have brought into the world and that we sadly so readily engage with. Rather, we have to acknowledge that the covenanting creator, God, has promised throughout Scripture to save us, to save us from something, from the very sin that we introduced. And that doesn't mean he's going to do a protective bubble around us, you know, like one of those giant plastic bubbles that as we walk through our way on this pilgrimage, it keeps us stable and shaded and protected from everything. 
No. As we travel the weary roads that we ourselves have paved, our expectation needs to be formed by the dual roles of a God who keeps his people while he is bringing everything to a new and fresh beginning in his son. That is how we experience both protection and suffering at the same moment. By recognizing ultimately what I'm arguing is that we have become in Christ something much bigger than ourselves. And what happens to us individually is not the determination of God's faithfulness and His keeping and His protection. What happens is, what has He promised? And what will He bring to pass? And are we going to be part of it? In Jesus Christ. And so let me end by using Jesus as the example of this. On that first Palm Sunday so long ago, when He rode into Jerusalem and they were singing songs and the, the psalms, and the crowds were cheering and the hosannas were ringing and, and the palm waves were, palms were waving and everything seemed so well. There was reason for great confidence. And yet Jesus knew that at the end of that week, by Sunday, he would have been beaten and tortured. He would have died a horrible, ignoble death on the cross of crucifixion. And then he would rise again to start a new week. He carried on in full confidence because he knew that God's promises and his plans to keep him involved dealing with the sin and rebellion of the world, providing solution for it, and bringing him through it, not unscathed by any standard, but kept and kept victoriously. And so if God did that to Jesus, his very son, how can we expect him to do something different for those of us who are privileged to be part of his body? He can keep us as he brings us to the completion of his promises in Christ Jesus because we're part of his body. And it's that psalmist's protection of the covenanting creator then I think that makes such great sense of Paul at the very end of Romans 8 when he says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, no, we're going to be protected. We're going to be kept, right? And then listen to what he says. As it is written... For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Whoa, whoa, I like the first part better. And then listen to what he says. No, in all these things, in the protection that takes a temporal element or the difficulties that lead towards the eternal keeping of the promises, he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In Christ, we are protected and we are kept. But that doesn't mean the vicissitudes of life aren't going to happen. That there aren't going to be great ups and downs. But in the midst of them all, being part of the covenant people in Christ Jesus, we know He watches unceasingly. He keeps us and protects us. And He will bring us to the completion of the promises in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so with the psalmist's vision, then we too can raise our eyes to the hills and even beyond. And we can say that the covenanting creator God is where my help comes from. 
Well, let's take just a moment to think through this short but really powerful song, and then we'll sing our final songs together. Amen. Please stand 